Hello there, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ, and I am so excited that you've joined us today to learn more about God's Word. The lesson that you're about to hear was part of an exciting series we had at the Franklin Church back in April of 2006. Max Dawson, a gospel evangelist and elder in the church in Beaumont, Texas, came and presented some lessons to us about the Holy Spirit. You're about to hear the very first lesson in that series, Who is the Holy Spirit? Please, Open your Bible, follow along, and let's learn about the Holy Spirit. As we begin our study about the Holy Spirit, let me just make some introductory comments. Uh, you have a workbook. I hope that everyone got a copy of the workbook. There are a few fill-in-the-blank answers that you'll want to do along the way. There's a whole lot more material in this workbook than we will present in this series. Probably, uh, we've got, what, four days here? We could do four weeks on this material if we wanted to. But there's an awful lot that's been written and spoken about the Holy Spirit. And yet, in spite of all that's been written and spoken, there's still a great deal of misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. Our objective this week is to provide some understanding uh, from the Word of God that will help us to get a clear picture of who and what the Holy Spirit is and to understand about His work. There's a lot of uh, disagreement about the work of the Holy Spirit, about His relation to a revelation about the giving of miraculous powers, the indwelling of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be answering a lot of those questions in the course of this week. But what's the reason for the controversies over the Holy Spirit? It is one reason and one reason only. And that is a failure to understand what the Holy Spirit says about Himself. This book, ladies and gentlemen, is the, the revelation, the only revelation, written revelation that the Holy Spirit has given. This is the source book. The source book for understanding the Holy Spirit. This is a book that is authored by the Holy Spirit Himself. I'm looking at Second Peter chapter 1. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, listen to the Apostle Peter, what he says about the writings of the Old Testament prophets. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse number 20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These things that are written in this book are the things that are given by the Holy Spirit. And when people do not go to this book to understand about the Holy Spirit, you can see why they're confused. Now, a lot of people have misconceptions, preconceptions, preconceived ideas before they ever go to the Bible. And two of the big problems that we face in the religious world today are Calvinism and Pentecostalism. Calvinism is a doctrine that says without special guidance from God, you can't understand the Bible. Calvinism says that unless the Lord works a miracle, the Holy Spirit works a miracle on your heart, you can't even read the Word of God. You won't know anything about it unless you get this special miracle from the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, Calvinism says that the Holy Spirit literally gets inside your body in the most literal sense. And then Pentecostalism goes a step further and says that all believers... It's the will of God that all believers have the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit. That God wants you to be able to speak in tongues, have the gift of healing, and work other kinds of miracles. Well, those are the kind of problems that we face in our modern religious world. But even among those who have more conservative views on the Holy Spirit, as I'm sure you do, there are still many vague and 
hazy and ill-defined ideas on the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, in a time when there is so much confusion and so much false teaching out there, we've got to have well-defined concepts from the Word of God. What we're going to be presenting then this week are concrete truths. Things that you can stand on, things that were true 1900 years ago when this book was completed, and things that will be true on the Judgment Day. Concrete truths, things that do not change. And hopefully, as we study the Word of God, we'll be rock solid when we're done. Now, what we're going to do in the course of this study is look at what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit. We're going to go to book, chapter, and verse. We're not here to talk about what some faith healer said. You know, some faith healer may say this or that. Some TV psychic or some fortune teller may say that. Or you may have heard something on a, on a radio broadcast. That's not what this study is about. This study is about what the Bible says. And if the Bible is not our authority then let me say to you that we have no way of defending against the false teacher. If the Bible is not our authority, we have no way of protecting our children from the false teacher. And listen, one thing you want to do as you're raising your kids, you want your kids to know and understand the truth about the Holy Spirit. And without good, good study, good teaching from the Bible, your kids just may very well be prey to false teachers and those who would lead them astray. Furthermore, if the Bible is not our standard of authority, then we have no means of strengthening the church and preventing apostasy. And so we ask the question, should we just listen to anyone who just comes along and says, well, here's what I think about the Holy Spirit. Obviously not. We're going to go to the Bible. It's not a matter of my feelings, my opinions, or my think-sos, but it's a matter of going to God's standard. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, what did God say? Let God be true and let every man be a liar. What God has said is the truth on it. And so that's where we're going. The Bible is our standard. Now, if you turn to page 2 of the little workbook that we provided for you, you'll see an index of the lessons there. You'll see six parts to the study, part 1 through 6. This morning we're addressing who is the Holy Spirit. And then you'll see it at the very bottom of page 2, uh, a couple of appendices that I've added there just for further information. We're going to study these six parts and the six lessons that we have, three today, then one Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday on each of those days. But our first assignment, if you go ahead and turn to page three, and listen, you don't have to follow along in the workbook. I've just provided this for your, for your study, uh, and uh, not only to help you kind of stay with, the, with us on the lesson here, but for your own personal study. And if you want, you can go ahead and read ahead. I don't care what you do. Just be here for all these sessions. I promise you, if you are here for all six sessions of this gospel meeting, you will learn a great deal about the Holy Spirit. I promise you that. On Monday night, we're going to be talking about speaking in tongues. Tuesday night, what is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Wednesday night, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Those are lessons that you need to know the truth on. And we're going to present the truth from God's Word. But for this morning, we're asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? That's our first assignment, to learn who He is. And let me tell you what He's not. The Holy Spirit is not just some mystical force, some unidentifiable substance, some power used by God, not merely the mind or disposition of God. We're going to see this morning that the Holy Spirit is a person of deity who cooperates with the Father and the Son, the other two persons of deity, in carrying out the great plan of God. And as a 
a beginning point today, let's talk about some of the names by which the Holy Spirit is called in Scripture. Now, if you notice on the middle of page three there, I've got about a dozen verses listed. I'm going to put those dozen verses up here. We're not going to read all of those verses right now, but I do have quotations that I will pull from each of those verses and we'll pay pay careful attention to those quotations. When we get to the end, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? Let's look here. Mark chapter one and verse 10, the first passage that we've got, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit descended in the form of a dove and lighted upon Jesus. There he's simply called the Spirit. And that's not uncommon language throughout the New Testament. In the book of Luke, in chapter 11 and verse 13, he's there called the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And then in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, if you have the King James Version today, it uses the language Holy Ghost. That thing which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. We'll make a comment on that a little bit later maybe. But let me just say for right now that there is no distinction biblically between Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost. The issue in the King James Version is merely a variation in translation, but if, you're consist- if they were consistent in translation, they would have said Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost in every place. And so that's only a, a variation in the King James Version. Looking at John chapter 14 and verse 16, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Helper, or if you've got another translation, the Comforter. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, it speaks there of Jesus when he died on the cross, how he offered himself through the eternal spirit, talking about in accordance with the plan of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, though, is called the eternal spirit in that place. In Matthew 3.16, at the baptism of Jesus, it says the spirit of God descended in the form of a dove. And then in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 20, Jesus said that as he sent these apostles out, when you speak, it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, here Jesus reading from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he said this is being fulfilled this very day. But the Holy Spirit called Spirit of the Lord. And then in Ephesians 4.30, it says... Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Again, just a variation of the same kind of language. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, the Spirit of the living God is the language found there. And then two more. Hebrews 10.29 speaks of doing despite or doing insult against the Spirit of grace. And then finally, John 14.17, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit and calls Him there the Spirit of truth. Now, that's a sampling of 12... Twelve terms or names that are used regarding the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Now, I have a question for you. As you look at this list, what significance do you see in the various terms that are used to describe the Spirit? Each term does what? And I want you to give an answer on that one. I'll let someone answer. Each term does what? Someone help me. Each term describes. Okay. Give me more. Okay. Gives you a description of the third member of the Godhead, but each term does something more. It tells you something about him, about his nature, about his character. As an example, when you see in the passage in Hebrews, 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29, it speaks of him as the Spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit is the one who has revealed the plan of grace for mankind. The Spirit of truth, he's called. He has revealed the truth to us. When you see the language eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14, the idea that the Holy Spirit is an eternal the eternal person. 
And so, understanding all these terminologies help us to understand something about the nature of the Holy Spirit. These are not just names per se, but these are terms that describe something about Him. Now, I want us to consider something else, and that is the way the word Spirit is used in the Bible. Spirit is used in many different ways in the Word of God. The word Spirit is from the Greek word pneuma. It's an interesting word. You drove here this morning in an automobile riding on pneumatic tires. That meant they had air in them. And, and the Greek word spirit can sometimes be translated air or wind, having to do with, with breathing even. Uh, we speak of pneumonia as a disease of the, the breathing system, the respiratory system. The word spirit, though, can be used in many different ways. Uh, it's sometimes uh, the word pneuma is translated wind, sometimes it's translated breath, it can even be translated as in reference to demons, to angels, it can be used in regard to man's spirit, and so on. But here I've, I've got four passages from the book of Romans just to give you an idea how the word spirit is used. And it's not always used regarding the Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, it is so important that we understand this, because there are some people who consciously or unconsciously go through a mental exercise every time they see the word spirit in the Bible. When they see the word spirit, they automatically think Holy Spirit. When they see the word spirit, it becomes Holy Spirit, then it becomes Holy Spirit baptism. And so some people, every time they see the word spirit, they think Holy Spirit baptism. Well, that's just not consistent with the text. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. Just quickly to touch on these four passages I've got here, we'll show you some different uses of the word spirit. Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, God is my witness, says Paul, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. What's this referring to? It's talking here about the spirit within man. It's talking about Paul's spirit in this case. Go to Romans chapter 2 and verse 29. In Romans 2, 29, Paul says he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And if, if you've got the New King James Version, which I'm reading from today, as well as most other translations, it puts a large S there on the word spirit. And, and typically when you see that, well, that's the Holy Spirit. But in this case, the editors have, uh, have I think, uh, gone the wrong direction. This is, I think, talking about the disposition, the, the disposition that one has toward God. And so it's the idea of attitude or disposition. Let me give you another example of the same thing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans 8:15. It says, "For you did not you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear." And in most translations the word spirit there is small s, okay? And, and what's it talking about? It's talking about the having the disposition of a slave. When we serve God, we do not serve God with the attitude of a slave. That is, God's cracking the whip over us and we serve Him under that lash. You did not receive the spirit or disposition of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Instead of serving God like slaves, we serve God as adopted sons. He has adopted us into His family. And so this again has to do with attitude or disposition even though some of the translations use a, a large S there, the uppercase S, for the second use of the word spirit. Then you go into Romans 8.16, then it says the Spirit Himself. Now, we're talking about the Holy Spirit in this passage. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. There's the spirit of man that we are children of God. So, see, the word spirit is used in, in a variety of ways. Now, the use of the capital S in spirit passages is a choice that is made by the translators to distinguish the Holy Spirit 
from other uses of the word spirit. But they're not always consistent in that. And you have to allow the context, either the immediate context or other context, to determine that. So just keep that in mind, that spirit is used in various ways. Now I'm going to page four in our little workbook, if you want to turn there, that's fine. And on page four, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit being a member of the Godhead. Someone says, ooh, I already I don't like the language. This scares me when we use language like Godhead because it's going to seem complex. Well, it's not really going to be so difficult. The term Godhead or Godhood simply means divine nature. And that word that is translated that way is found three times in the New Testament. It is found in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29 where there the Apostle Paul said that the Godhead, or if you've got another translation that says divine nature, the Godhead is not like silver or gold or stone or that which is graven by art and man's device. And so he's saying that the divine nature is not silver, gold, or something that you would make with your own hands. The word is found again in Romans 1.20, also found in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, where there the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ and says, In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, all the fullness of divine nature. When you see the term Godhead, just think in terms of Godhood or divine nature. Now, when one possesses Godhood, it means that he possesses the qualities of being God. Just like when one possesses the qualities of manhood, it means he possesses the qualities of being man. Okay? Manhood possesses qualities of being man. Godhood, the qualities of being God. So when we say that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead or the Godhood, we mean he, he has divine nature. Now, there are a plurality of persons who possess divine nature. Though there's only one God, there are three persons within that one Godhood or one Godhead. The three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three, by the way, were present at the beginning. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, they didn't exist in the Old Testament. Oh, yes, they did. Though the revelation is not as clear in the Old Testament as it is in the New, they certainly existed in the Old Testament. Look with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God, there's the Father, a reference to Him. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so you've got God and the Holy Spirit in that passage. But look down at verse 26. In verse 26 of that same chapter, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice the personal pronouns, plural pronouns, us and our. This is the Father speaking to the other persons of the Godhead. Speaking not only to the Holy Spirit, but to Jesus the Son. Someone says Jesus wasn't back there. Oh, yes, he was. He didn't have a fleshly body at that point in time, but he existed. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And listen to what John says about the Lord Jesus. He begins John chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, let's pause for a moment. Who is this one called the Word? Well, John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh, and and thus then it is a reference to Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And so, the, the person we're speaking of then is Jesus before he had a fleshly body. Now, going back to John 1 and verse 2, it says he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. This says Jesus was present at the creation. All three were present at the creation. All three are eternal. All three have existed forever. When we baptize someone, we baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, John, or Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. And so we have three persons of the Godhead. They are one in the sense of agreement, per, purpose, and action. They're one in that sense. In fact, look at John chapter 17 and verses 20 and 21. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus here is praying to the Father. This is the night before he died. He is praying to the Father. He's with the disciples in the upper room. And he says, I, not, I do not pray for these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now notice here, he prays that all believers would be one, and he says that they should all be one in the same way that he is one with the Father. Well, now, sometimes people say, well, Jesus is one with the Father, that is, one person. He and the Father are the same person. No, they're not the same person, any more than all believers are the same person. All believers are to be one in the sense of a united one. Rather than it being a numerical or mathematic one, it's the idea of unity. We're all one together. We sing a song at home called, We Are One. We don't mean we're one person but we mean that we are united in agreement, purpose, and action as Christians. And that's the way it is in the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're united, agreement, purpose, and action together. And, and, and as another example of that kind of oneness, look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. In Ephesians 5.31, the apostle there is talking about the marriage relationship. And someone may have even read this passage at your wedding. Ephesians 5.31 for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. you still got two persons, but they're one in the sense that they're united. And so it is with the Godhead then. The idea of agreement, purpose, and action together as one. And as we go just a step further, we will emphasize that they're not one person. In fact, we have more that we'll be presenting in just a moment. You'll notice at the bottom of page four, you've got a chart and, and let me say something about charts like this. All charts like this, or, or illustrations that we may use, they're always inadequate. They, they always break down at some point. They don't perfectly represent anything. And I don't think if you go to heaven that you're going to see a chart up there in heaven like this. But what this does, it serves a purpose to illustrate something. Okay? And we're going to be presenting charts throughout the week that we think will help us to illustrate. But let's talk about the Holy Spirit as a divine person, because that's a key element of our study on who is the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to say in the very beginning is that the individuality of the Holy Spirit shows that He is distinct from the Father. He is distinct from the Son by His actions and by His locality. First of all, the Holy Spirit is called God. You look at the passage in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. I know that you're familiar with this. It had to do with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. 
And, and Peter said to Ananias, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Notice he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Keep back part of the price of land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so in the one verse, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In the other, he says, you've lied to God. I think the implication is, is that the Holy Spirit is God. There are other passages, I think, that we could do the same thing with. But rather than do that, let's look at some of the qualities of deity and see that the Holy Spirit possesses qualities of deity. If he possesses those qualities, then indeed he is a divine person. Well, we've already read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where it said, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Well, there's a couple of things you can get from that passage. One, that he has creative power. The Holy Spirit was present in creation, and he was active in creation, just as the Father was and just as the Son was. What does that tell you? You see, it's only God who can create. And you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three involved, all three having creative power. But secondly, notice in that passage, you have presence of the Holy Spirit. There is a presence there. There is locality. It says, He moved upon the face of the waters. And then we've already seen the passage in Hebrews 9.14, which spoke of the Holy Spirit as having eternal nature. It speaks of Jesus who, the, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God. And so the Holy Spirit is eternal in nature. Just like the Father is eternal. And just like the Son is eternal. And that's a quality of Godhood. Someone says, but Max, aren't we also eternal in nature? Well, in the sense that we have eternal life, you, you might be able to say in that sense that God has given us that. But that's only going forward. It's not going backward. You see, the Bible speaks of deity as being from everlasting to everlasting, having no beginning and having no end. We all had a beginning. And so, it's not proper to speak of man as being eternal in nature. Only deity is eternal in nature, and the Holy Spirit is eternal in nature. Notice in Psalm 139, what I want you to see there is that there's omnipresence on the part of the Holy Spirit. This is Psalm 139. And beginning at verse 7, here David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The idea that the Holy Spirit is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go. Nowhere you can go that He's not. Nowhere you can go where He's not aware of where you are. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. And you can read the rest of that. You see the idea of omnipresence. Now, maybe we'll say something more later in the week about omnipresence, what, what that concept involves. In fact, we have uh, a point in one of our other lessons where we deal with omnipresence. But understand that for right now, that just as the Father is everywhere present, the word omni is all, everywhere present, all present, so is the Holy Spirit, omnipresent. And then finally, I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, that the Holy Spirit has knowledge and that He searches. And He knows the mind of God. He searches the mind of the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11, it speaks of the things of God. He says, God has revealed them to us 
through His Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, for what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God knows the things of God, and the Spirit of God searches the mind of God, and He reveals those things. Again, He has the same knowledge as the Father. And so we, again, see He has the qualities of deity. Now, although the Holy Spirit has the qualities of deity, He is to be distinguished from the Father and the Son because He is a separate and individual personality. Remember at the baptism of Jesus, look in your Bible in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus, you'll see all three persons of the Godhead manifested separately and individually. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, It speaks of Jesus. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now notice, Jesus has just come up out of the water, and here comes the Spirit of God descending in the form of a dove and alighting upon him. And then suddenly, there's a voice that came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There you've got Jesus just coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God descending like the dove, and the Father speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. That's three, count them, one, two, three persons of the Godhead, all manifested at the same time in the same incident. That's critical to understand that. Because some people say, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. No, He's not. That is just not so. And, no, and the Bible will not stand up to that kind, of, that kind of thinking. There are three persons of the Godhead, not one, but three. And they have individuality. They have separate personhood. I want you to notice now the chart that we've prepared. And as I said a moment ago, charts are always inadequate, but this will serve our purposes for this morning. I want you to take note of some things on the chart. And the chart is actually quite simple, though it may look a little complex in the beginning. Let's just speak here regarding the Father first. The Father is deity. John chapter 20 and verse 17 makes that clear. Jesus, speaking to Mary Magdalene, said, I go to my Father and to your Father. I go to my God and your God. There Jesus called the Father God. He called Him deity. Deity is the idea of having qualities of being God. Okay? Just like the term Godhead or Godhood. And so the Father is deity. The Son is deity. Here we have in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, Here the Father speaks concerning the Son, and He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's Father speaking to Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So, in this passage here in John 20, we have the Son called the Father God. In this passage in Hebrews 1.8, we have the Father called the Son God. Okay? So, both, the term God is used of both. And then with respect to the Holy Spirit, we saw the passage in Acts chapter 5 where Peter used the term Holy Spirit and God interchangeably, implying that the Holy Spirit is God. So, what do we have? The Father is deity. The Son is deity. Holy Spirit is deity. But now watch this. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. Okay? Look at John fourteen twenty-six. In John chapter 14 and verse 26... I want you to see that there's distinction here. And the Father, when you look at passages like this, 
you can't say that the Father and the Holy Spirit are the same. Notice it says in John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now, there you've got all three persons of the Godhead. You've got Jesus speaking. He says, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit in my name. Jesus said my name. That's Jesus, okay? What's the Father going to do? The Father is going to send the Holy Spirit in my name. The Father's not sending Himself. He's sending the Holy Spirit. Can you see the distinction there? Therefore, you cannot say that the Father is the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, in Acts 10, 38, it there speaks regarding uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the text says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Here you've got God the Father mentioned in the text. And what did He do? He anointed Jesus the Son with the Holy Spirit. Didn't anoint Him with Himself, didn't anoint Jesus with Jesus, but He anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. The Son, then, is not the Holy Spirit, and we can also say that the Son is not the Father. We've got passages that make it clear that the three have individuality, separateness, and distinct, distinctness. In John chapter 8 and verse 16, some of the Jews were questioning Jesus, and Jesus said, I am not alone but my Father is with me. Notice he said, I am not alone. If, if Jesus and the Father are the same person, then Jesus is alone. And he cannot say that the Father is with me. But in John 8, 16, he says, I am not alone, but my Father also, he testifies of me. So, when you look again at the chart, it's not really so complex. The Father is deity. The Son is deity. Holy Spirit is deity. But the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father. Distinct, distinctness. Individual personality. Notice something else. Look at John 14. John 14, 26. Someone says, well, we sure are going fast through all this. I wish we had time to stop and ask questions. Well, we'll try to maybe have a time later when we can do a question and answer period. But we're going to cover a lot of material. And that's why I wanted to provide you with the workbook. In John chapter 14, in verse 26, Jesus said that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said unto you. Notice that the Spirit was sent by the Father. What does the Spirit do? Look at John 15:26. You see what the Spirit does. The Helper comes, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And then look at John 16, 13. John 16, 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Or if you have another translation, it says he will not speak of himself. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit then did not come to the apostles to speak concerning Himself, but to speak concerning the Son. Once again, you see individual distinctness and personality among all three persons of the Godhead. Now, the idea of the Godhead, I, I recognize, is difficult to comprehend. And there's a lot of questions that I don't understand about the nature of deity and about the relationship of the three persons to one another. But I'll tell you one thing I do understand. I understand that the Bible says that they are clearly individual, distinct persons of the Godhead. But we would hasten to point out that they're not three gods. You see, someone wants to say, oh, you believe then in three different gods. No, the Bible consistently 
represents this as being one God with three persons of the Godhead. Okay, we've got about six or seven minutes left. I want to do one more thing on the divine person, and I want to talk about attributes of personhood that are described, that are ascribed to him. Uh, it's important that we understand, when we use the word person, maybe someone's been sitting in the audience this morning saying, well, you're saying the Holy Spirit is a person, a human being, a man, a person in that sense. No, not in that sense. Webster's Dictionary defines personhood or defines person as a being characterized by conscious apprehension, rationality, and a moral sense. The devil is a person. Angels are persons. The Father is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. But that doesn't make them human beings. But it does fit the definition of what person means, of, of being characterized by conscious apprehension, rationality, and a moral sense. And that definition fits the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has never been a human. Only one person of the Godhead ever became a man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice these things that are attributed to the Holy Spirit. These are attributes of personhood. And, and you'll see here the idea of conscious apprehension, uh, knowledge, rationality, those qualities. We've already noted the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11 where it talks about how the Holy Spirit knows the things of God. He has knowledge. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, it there speaks of the Holy Spirit giving out the, the miraculous spiritual gifts. And it says He does those according to His own will. He has a will. Okay? And then when you look at Acts 15 and verse 28, it speaks of things that seem good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Here is something that was a matter of judgment that went out. The Holy Spirit possesses judgment. In John chapter 16, verses 13 to 15, we've already read the passage which said the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Whatever He hears, that He will tell you. He will show you things to come. That kind of language is used. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, and if you want to fill in your blanks on these, you can. Uh, we're probably talking faster than you can write right now. But in First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly. In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Holy Spirit speaks. You see, in all of these passages, we see attributes of personhood ascribed to Him. In John chapter 15 and verse 26, we just read the passage a moment ago. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, He will testify of me. That is, the idea that He would bear witness. He would have a message about me, said Jesus. He will testify. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, we see that the Holy Spirit can be sad. Someone says, I can't conceive of God ever being sad. Yeah, well, God is sad sometimes. Back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, remember, it says that it grieved the Lord that He had made man. It repented the Lord. And here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by your disobedience to what the Spirit has given you. You caused Him to be grieved. And I think that's significant to understand that. As you look further in Hebrews 10.29, the Holy Spirit can be insulted. It talks about those who reject Christ, who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and have insulted the Spirit of grace, counting the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. And so, just like a per any person can be insulted, the Holy Spirit can be insulted. And then we, we began our study this morning with 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where we saw the fact that those prophets in the Old Testament were guided and the word guide there means to be carried along. They were directed by the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, 
The Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The Holy Spirit speaks. He says something. And then finally, in Acts 16 and verse 6, the apostles, Paul and his co-workers, were going to go into a certain area and teach the Word of God. And the text says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into that area. They were directed to go to another place. Well, in light of all these things that we've just seen in these passages... This shows us that, that the Holy Spirit is clearly a person with all that that term implies. He is not some mystical substance. The Holy Spirit is not the mind of God, is not the mind of Christ, but knows the mind of God and knows the mind of Christ. He is not a mere influence. He is not an impersonal force, but he is a person of the Godhead. And finally, I would like to give you this that the Holy Spirit cooperates in the work of deity. We pointed out a little while ago that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved in the physical creation. Uh, The Father planned it. The Son executed part of it. The Holy Spirit also assisted in it. The same thing is true with regard to the spiritual creation, the church, the gospel, the new gospel age. Again, the Father planned it, the Son executed it by going to the cross, and the Holy Spirit has assisted in it by revealing the plan unto mankind. And I've got a whole lot of scriptures there that demonstrate those particular points. But let me close this morning with this statement, and it's found in your conclusion on page 5. But let me give this to you, that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. By that I mean a distinct person of the Godhead, working with the Father and with the Son in the administration of God's plan. Now someone says, Max, why do you think it's so important to talk about the Holy Spirit as a person? Because you will never understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit unless you understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. You'll never understand spiritual gifts. You won't understand the gift of the Holy Spirit. You won't understand the indwelling of the Holy Spirit unless you understand first that we're talking about a person. You see, there are some people who hold views on the baptism of the Holy Spirit or on the indwelling of the Spirit. They hold views on these things that demand that we cut the Holy Spirit up into tiny little parts and give you a piece of Him. You get a piece, you get a piece, I get a piece. People all over the world have got tiny little bits of the Holy Spirit that He's been divided up among millions of people around the world. Let me just tell you that if we attempt to divide the Holy Spirit into parts and distribute Him personally to thousands of believers, then we have destroyed the very concept of personal identity. Could you take a human being and divide him up into parts and scatter him all over the earth and still him retain his integrity as a human being? No, you could not do that. And so, whatever explanations we're going to give to the Holy Spirit's work and gifts and conversion, sanctification, we will accept no explanations that call for his destruction as a person. And ladies and gentlemen, let me say to you, and I say this without fear of successful contradiction. I've been involved for 30-some years in studying issues like this. I've done more than a dozen years on the radio, five days a week, discussing issues about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that the traditional views that are held on the Holy Spirit by most of the religious world, where they believe in a personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that those views typically demand a, a destruction of the Holy Spirit as a person. It's important that you understand that He is a person. He is with the Father in heaven, the same as the Son is with the Father in heaven. And unless we see the distinction between the person of the Holy Spirit and the work that He does, between the person of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that He bestows, 
then we'll end up in total confusion. And when you look around in the religious world today, what do you see but confusion and contradiction? It's because they failed to study the book that the Holy Spirit has given to us. Our next lesson in the worship hour, we'll talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for your consideration this morning. I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you, helping you understand the Holy Spirit and His nature, recognizing that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a distinct person within the unified Godhead. If you have any questions about the Holy Spirit, if you have questions about the Word of God, or if you have questions about the Franklin Church of Christ, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps someone has given you this lesson on CD or audio tape. If that's the case, let me encourage you to go to that website that I just mentioned. Again, it's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons in both audio and outline format that you are free to download and use for whatever purpose you believe will glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.